Hi, everyone. This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Noah Kikweva Lincoln, a professor in the Department of Tropical Plant and Soil Sciences at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Noah's specialty areas include biogeochemistry, ethnography, and archaeology of traditional farming methods. We talked about Noah's work on Hawaiian farming systems, and in this context, I asked him about the Hawaiian concept of kuleana as a combination of both a right to and respect for the environment. Noah also talked to me about the intrinsic power of stories and storytelling, and the importance of interdisciplinary work in enabling us to tell compelling stories about our relationship with the environment. So now the first question I ask it every single time and I even have a name for it. It's called the origin story question. <laughs> and I don't know if I got that. I, I think I got that term from kind of the superhero literature where every character has mm. kind of like an origin story where they go from being one thing to being another. And so I'm interested in your own sense of how you got to where you are. You know, so reading about you online, I see that you got a bachelor's in environmental engineering at Yale. You went to Stanford um, and got a PhD in biochemistry and social ecology, which is an interesting and unusual combination of words from my perspective. <laughs> so I'm interested in, in how that all went for you. Um, and now you're at the University of Hawaii in Manoa, correct? Yeah. Okay. In a department of uh, plant and, so and soil science. So I'm an environmental social scientist. And, and for me, some of your work looks like environmental social science. You're interviewing farmers. You're trying to understand local knowledge systems, traditional knowledge, indigenous practices. And so you're this interesting mix professionally. And a lot of our guests that have come on this podcast are similar in some ways in which they're, you know, a common theme that we've heard from a lot of guests is, well, they, they were doing ecology and then they realized that people mattered. That's kind of like one bucket that we have that I kind of chunk people into. And I don't want to push that mm -hmm. on you. Um, <laughs> so I'm interested in your own words, how you make sense of these different steps that I've just described. Um, mm -hmm. What were some key experiences for you that led you down one path or another, ultimately to where you are now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, the origin really, I think, is pretty deeply embedded, you know, to to my childhood, um, you know, in terms of having, you know, a fairly cultural upbringing, um, you know, a very, very um, environmentally immersed um, childhood. Um, you know, my father was a fisherman, he grew up you know, in the water, um, down at the harbor pretty much every day. Um, uh, from a really early age, I was, I was mentored um, from a Hawaiian elder in La'au Lapa'au. So we used to go out in the forest um, with her several times a month. And, um, you know, she would just teach me how to appropriately walk through the forest and, and protocols and plants and how to use them. And, um, you know, and as a child, you know, you're, you're not, 
aware of the impact that's having on you. In fact, as a child, a lot of times you don't even like it. Like all your friends are going to go surf at the beach and you got to go with Auntie out in the forest. And you're like, oh, you know. And, right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, looking back, I mean, that was just extremely important for really grounding the the relationship um, with our land as just a very, very central value, you know, in, in who I am um, at a very personal level, you know, well, well outside the professional, uh, realm. Um, and so, you know, that extends to, to everything in my life today in terms of what I like to do for fun and, you know, um, what I do with my kids. And, um, so yeah, so that was a really, really important, um, touchstone, um, or kind of grounding point. And, you know, I grew up pretty rural, um, but then I went to a boarding school for um, uh, intermediate and high school uh, in Honolulu, um, Kamehameha Schools over on Oahu. And so, you know, at a pretty early age, at, you know, about 11 um, or so, you know, I went from these, this, you know, extremely rural, you know, very environmentally immersed um, lifestyle into living, um, you know, essentially in a city, you know, Honolulu is a population of about a million people these days. It's a, you know, it's a concrete, um, jungle <laughs> and, um, you know, that transition, even at that stage in my life, like I was very hyper aware of the, um, the, what I perceived as negative um, outcomes of, of urbanization. Um, you know, for instance, every single river um, uh, in Honolulu is canalized, um, you know, and hmm. where I came from, like we would play in the rivers all the time. Like we'd swim in the swimming holes and jump off waterfalls and, you know, catch a little opai shrimp and stuff and then going to Oahu and just seeing right these canals of like brown sludge and trash floating down like you know I mean even as a kid I was really really aware of like wow that's that sucks <laughs> um, right and you know and so kind of you know even at that age was kind of interested in in um in that transition you know why humans uh, were kind of moving in that direction as you know held up as you know progress and like that's where we're supposed to do like you know transform the rural areas into these productive cities and I'm like well it doesn't seem like it's a good idea um and so yeah kind of started to get into it um or try to understand i guess the the forces maybe that were driving um, those changes. And, um, you know, I think very quickly uh, realized, you know, through some really good kind of political science and social science teachers um, at our high school that, you know, most of these decisions and forces were much larger than Hawaii, right? Like the answers aren't all here at home um, because Hawaii is a pretty small fish in a big pond and you know you have these huge um you know institutions uh that have a lot of sway in terms of what happens in hawaii um and so that's why i went to yale for my undergrad um 
well, a few reasons. One is that, um, you know, I got a scholarship to go. Um, and the other reason is I didn't get into Stanford. So um, I was like, all right, well, <laughs> but I did want to, um, I did want to go up to the East Coast because back then, you know, I graduated high school in 99, like New York was still kind of the undisputed center of the planet, you know, in terms of power and, and um, you know, American culture. And, and, you know, when you think about these larger forces, right, um, that were, were influencing my home, like, you know, a lot of those, those larger forces emanate from from New York, you know, and the Wall Street and, you know, just, um, yeah, again, the kind of money and cent power center of the planet. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I went up to the East Coast and then really saw, you know, the long term effects of, of you know, that uh, change that came with with urbanization and things like that. And, um, you know, and also got really, really good exposure to um, you know, some of the, you know, most privileged, powerful young people in the world, in all honesty, and, um, you know, got a sense of who they are, and, and what their values are, and what drives them, and um, actually got really, really jaded. <laughs> when I came out of undergrad man i was just like we are we are screwed this is not gonna go well um yeah and so i uh so i actually ran away down to like central america for about a year and just tried to kind of tune out and forget it all and like ah, i'm just gonna go surf and have fun and um but yeah that didn't last too long and you know i think kind of a sense of responsibility right that you know if if not you who and if not now when kind of thing and um so yeah i decided to come home and really try to start working on these uh these types of problems um so yeah kind of through my um late high school and undergrad um was certainly more on the end of of ecology um research uh, my undergrad was in environmental engineering, but that was just because Yale did not have any other um, environmental programs at that time. Really? Um, okay. Yeah, I know. I kind of went there because their graduate um, forestry program was so exactly, well known. Yeah. yeah. And I totally expected that they would have a strong undergrad program leading into that. And that was just not the case. Um, I kind of ended up in this engineering degree and, um, you know, we got to interact with the, the grad program, which was good, but, but that was certainly my advisor for undergrad, Roger Eli, um, ended up going, I think to Colorado college a few years later. Uh, he was one of the first, I think, kind of real interdisciplinarians, uh, academically that I interacted with. And, um, yeah, so he had this really strong social component, even in this engineering track degree. Um, and the line he said that always really stuck with me is like, you can engineer the perfect solution that nobody wants. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, at that time was kind of much more in ecology. Um, you know, I was doing internships like in coral reef restoration and um, 
you know, I came back and I started managing a bunch of kind of forest restoration projects and things like that. Um, and did that for a few years and then um, ended up as a ethnobotany educator at a uh, um, ethnobotanical garden. And um, I was just a really, really happy <laughs> time of my life. You know, it was just this very, you know, understated, but really important to the community of practice um, place. Um, you know, a place that really maintained the, the plants and the native crops, um, but more importantly, really maintained the, the community of practice around it. And just had really great engagement and support with, you know, our native practitioners and our native farmers and hula halau. And, and so it's just this really vibrant um, place where there's this beautiful intersection between the kind of science of conserving and, and perpetuating these plants uh, and the actual application and use of those plants to maintain um, culture and other um, outcomes of, of using them. And yeah, at that time in my life, I had no desire to go back to school <laughs> um, at all. Uh, but I ended up meeting two, two really important mentors at that time. Uh, and one was Anakala Jerry Kononui, who was a, a, a native farmer, but just really embodied everything about what it meant to really have a relationship, you know, with our, our plants and with the land and with other people. And um, just this really, really beautiful, jovial soul. Um, but he was really important in realigning, I guess, my uh, interest into our native crops, uh, as opposed, you know, prior to then, I was really working with with native, you know, endemic and indigenous species. And um, he really got me interested in our traditional agriculture and um, our traditional crops. Um, and at the same time, I met uh, Dr. Peter Vitusik, who's a professor up at Stanford. And, um, you know, he mostly does soil and ecology as well. But through that work, he kind of stumbled upon the discovery of the, the interaction between the biogeochemistry he was seeing on the landscape and the agroecological usage of, of our ancestors um, and just how, you know, our, our Hawaiian cultivators were um, clearly extremely aware of these um, like biogeochemical thresholds that existed on the landscape and that they were, you know, utilizing the landscape in a way that was very well informed by the underlying patterns of, of the soil science and um, long-term ecology. And so, yeah, he's really the one who convinced me to, to go back to school and get a PhD and at the time, he was the director for Stanford's new interdisciplinary PhD program, the Emmett Interdisciplinary Program in Environment and Resources. And so, yeah, so that program kind of required, right, a, both a social and a 
hard science um, application. And, okay, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, so that's kind of why I ended up with the the mix of social ecology and uh, um, biogeochemistry. And my dissertation really looked at that interaction between the human usage of the landscape, um, the landscape properties, and then how that feeds back and manifests further back into the societal norms and cultural norms, political norms that um, govern the usage of that landscape. And where was that work done, Noah? I was back in Hawaii. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so I specifically looked at the, the Kona field system. Um, this picture here behind me, if you can see that corrugation on the landscape. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, this is uh, the Kohala field system, a very similar system that um, we do a lot of work in as well. And uh, what was very, um, a very aha moment for me uh, was the first time Peter took me out to the, the Kohala system. And um, yeah, I mean, at this time I had, you know, seen Hawaiian agriculture uh, and Polynesian agriculture more generally, like um, all around the Pacific and, you know, Bo'i and different types of systems. And so he takes me out into Kohala. He's like, you know, have you ever seen these field systems? And I was like, no, no. And you, you get out there and it's all pasture land today. Um, I mean, you know, Parker Ranch, I think is still the largest cattle ranch in the nation, something like 289,000 acres of cattle land. And, um, you know, you get out there and all you see is just the sea of grass, you know, and it's a super harsh landscape. It's situated between um, right next to the channel between Maui and the big islands. So the trade winds get funneled between the mountains and like an average day out there is like 35 mile an hour winds. And so you're, you know, walking through just this like waist high sea of grass and the wind's just like slamming you and you can't see anything. I mean, it just looks like a pasture. And, Peter sitting there telling me about like how this huge system like fed like tens of thousands of people and this and this. And you're just looking around like, what are you talking about? Like there's nothing here. And um, the landscape is dotted with these pu'u, these old cinder cones from kind of short-term sporadic volcanic eruptions. And so, you know, we start hiking up one of the hills and the wind's like pushing you down and you're like, trudging up this hill and Peter's still going on and on. He's all animated and excited. And you get to the top of the hill and you turn around and I swear to God, it's like one of those like magic 3d iBooks where like, there's just some weird, crazy pattern. And then all of a sudden, like it clicks and your eyes like see it. And with that uh, like proper perspective on the landscape, all these walls suddenly just like emerge out of the grass. And it's just like, as far as you can see, you know, just miles and miles and miles of these field walls. And um, it was a really important moment for me because I mean, even, you know, growing up um, with our, our Hawaiian history and, you know, kind of being um, relatively immersed in the culture and, you know, spending time with archaeologists and seeing sites all over the Pacific. Um, the scale 
and the scope of what was happening here in Hawaii prior to European arrival, it never hit home until then. Like in my mind, you still have this image of collections of villages and, you know, kind of a sparse population, a sparse utilization of the landscape. Um, but, you know, going up that hill and just seeing this 15 square mile nonstop massive, I mean, this is like a continental scale ag system um, on these tiny islands. And it just really absolutely shattered my image of what pre-contact Hawaii was like and what was going on here um, and the extent and intensity of landscape management that was going on. And so, yeah, really shifted my whole thought, you know, of, of um, just the socio-political complexity uh, of, of Hawaii. And so, yeah, I mean, that was a really, a really powerful moment for me and, and one that is certainly a key, <laughs> key yeah. moment. I mean, that might be the origin story for my <laughs> main mode of work today um, was kind of that, that moment of hiking up the hill and yeah, being okay. bestowed with a new, <laughs> a new perspective. Yeah, that's quite something. Currently, it is pasture land. <laughs> and was it traditionally pasture land as well? It, or was it the rain-fed farming that you did, you've written about? This is the rain-fed farming, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, intensive, um, diversified system, you know, based on a, a handful of crops. Um, this system in particular was sweet potato dominated. Okay. Yeah. So these walls were separating different fields. Yeah. Am I hearing that right? Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And they also played... Uh, um, a lot of our research is showing now that they did have also a strong agronomic function. So for instance, the layout of the system itself utilized rows of sugarcane along these walls. Um, and with that 35 mile an hour, you know, daily wind coming through those, those um, walls and the cane acted um, not only as a, a windbreak, um, which was an important function, but we find that they were a critical mistrap in terms of pulling moisture out of the air and helping to irrigate this, uh, this landscape as well. So they played likely both the agronomic and the social um, role, the, the walls. Mm. So yeah, so coming out of, of the PhD, I mean, this is really what I was, was interested in. You know, Hawaii is amongst the most ecologically diverse and ecologically dense uh, locations on the planet. Um, you know, we have two thirds of the Holdridge life zones on Hawaii Island alone. And here in Kohala, um, you can literally walk from a true desert, right? About 150 to 200 millimeters of rain a year. And you can walk up to one of the wettest places on the planet, you know, at up over 7,000 millimeters of rain a year in a nine mile span. <laughs> you can walk it in about three and a half hours and cover almost the entire precipitation gradient we know on the planet. Um, it's just an amazing, amazing, um, ecological example. But because of that, because Hawaii is arguably one of the, the most ecologically dense places on the planet, it kind of follows that 
Hawaiian land management had to be equally diverse and adaptive to all these different ecological zones we had and all the different, you know, biogeochemical cycles and um, all the opportunities and constraints that these different ecologies offer, you know, our ancestors had to figure out how to best use those ecologies. Um, and again, a lot of times they're right next to each other. And so, yeah, so I really became interested, you know, first in kind of Hawaiian adaptation to our ecological diversity. And again, how that utilization feeds back on the society over time. And then increasingly, we've also been um, doing work on other Polynesian islands to look at different strategies, adaptation strategies that emerged on, on the different islands. And I do think this is really important today. Um, you know, I think increasingly, I mean, especially the younger generation who's growing up with it, you know, people are becoming a lot more aware of the environmental uh, issues um, in our current management. And um, I think a lot of that stems from a continental mentality of um, there being so much space, you know, and the ability to move, the ability to migrate, you know, the ability to war with your neighbors if you run out of resources. Um, and when you look at, you know, aspects of Western culture, like I think they're deeply, deeply embedded into the value system. I mean, going all the way back to things like the Bible, right? Like it's very clearly states in the Bible that, humans are given dominion over all other life forms like there's a, a concept of of um you know man above nature that is is you know very deeply embedded in in the the euro the european cultures and then that you know gets manifested into things like manifest destiny and and colonization um whereas when you look at at um, indigenous cultures uh, and island cultures in particular, you know, I mean, there's a very famous Olelo Noyao uh, uh, saying in Hawaii, Hialii no kaina hikawa valike kanaka, that the land is chief and the people are merely servants. And you know, when you look at at most First Nations cultures, right, the the concept of kinship is extremely strong in terms of, of, you know, not elevating man over other things, but recognizing that we are interdependent and, um, you know, highly reliant on each other for, for mutual success. And then island cultures in particular, they came up against resource scarcity much more rapidly than, than any continental cultures. Um, if you're on a tiny island in the Pacific, if you run out of resources, you can't just move on down the road. You know, There's no neighbors you can go to war with and take their resources. Like You have to figure it out. You have to figure out, this is what we have. We have to make it work. And I think that mentality is just starting to, to become um, prevalent in the global society that, you know, are realizing, okay, this is island earth, right? This is all we have for the time being. I mean, Musk might dispute that a little bit, but, um, 
but for the most part, I think people are like, okay, um, this is what we have. We need to make this work. We can't just keep kicking, kicking things down the road. Um, so yeah, so uh, when I came, came back home to Hawaii, I was definitely more prioritizing coming home to Hawaii than I was working in academia. <laughs> um, but right as I came home, um, this position was opening up called Indigenous Crops and Cropping Systems. Uh, it was a new position they created. And the first time there is a position on Indigenous agriculture in an agronomy department. There's tons of positions on Indigenous agriculture in, you know, Hawaiian studies, in um, anthropology, in a bunch of the social sciences, there are positions that consider Indigenous ag. Um, and there's certainly a lot of people in agronomy departments who have studied Indigenous ag or had that as their main thing. But as far as I can been able to find, this has been the only position that, you know, mandated to focus on, on Indigenous crops uh, in an agronomy department. So coming into this position, I mean, this was still my main focus, you know, wanting to, to look at and understand, you know, indigenous adaptation of agroecology to, to native landscapes. But uh, two things, I guess, one is, is while it's fascinating, um, it was a little bit too theoretical. And I still do it, you know, I mean, I still work a lot with, with archaeologists and anthropologists, and we have a number of projects, you know, looking at this adaptation, it's, it's what I love, like if I uh, didn't feel further responsibility, like I would just do this, because it's like, yeah, it's definitely what I get off on, it's, it's super cool. Um, but it, it is also, you know, situated in the past. Um, and I felt we needed something that connected it to the contemporary issues stronger. And so, yeah, so now half my research is still this kind of, you know, uh, Polynesian adaptation um, concept. Um, but the other half is, you know, working very strongly with farmers today and understanding what, what from the past is relevant you know, how do we get those working today, you know, especially in today's uh, uh, economic systems, right? It's, it's easy to be idealistic about what agriculture should be, but it is very, very hard to make a living as a farmer. And balancing, you know, the values and what we want to see come from agriculture with the reality of what it takes to uh, make a living as a farmer today is, is kind of where we spend a lot of, a lot of our time in, in exploring. Sorry, that was a very long origin story. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's kind of as if you've been looking at my notes because you mentioned all of the broad topics that I'd like to dive in a little bit more with you on. So the two main things I'd love to talk to you about are this idea of adaptation and this idea that you mentioned of different types of relationships to I don't even want to say resources because I know that the idea of resources kind of implies a certain type of relationship, a certain relationship to nature, whatever the most kind of ideologically neutral term for it we can think of. So you mm -hmm. mentioned toward the beginning, Noah, that you 
had this relationship with this elder and they talked to you about the appropriate the appropriate way to move through a forest and i kind of made a mental note about that idea because it is at once kind of foreign to me but also really it's it's an idea that excites me my origin story involves kind of running around in the woods and having this sense of deep connection kind of come out of nowhere i wasn't enculturated to think that way it was i don't know where it really came from but it's a very powerful and it's kind of similar to what you were saying is it happened when I was seven and it took me another 20 years to realize that it kind of mattered what happened, you know, that it was this big influence, but this idea of appropriateness and of how the idea of appropriateness could structure the way in which you engage with nature is something I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about in your reading. And I've, and in some other reading, I've, I've come across this term, and you'll have to correct me if I get the pronunciation wrong, kuleana, this mm-hmm. idea of um, a reciprocal relationship with nature and with the land. And it's, there's this interesting connection that I've made in, in different literatures, in, in the literature on the evolution of cooperation, which is something that um, is kind of adjacent to what I do, there's basically two ways in which evolutionary theory talks about how we cooperate. It's through kinship and through reciprocity. And you can kind of boil down a lot of other stuff to those two models. And as I've started to dive more into the anthropological literature on indigenous and traditional management, those two concepts are also very prominent. Mm -hmm. And to me, this idea of Kuleana seems very important and powerful. Um, part of where I'm coming from is I want to say maybe an orthodox approach to hmm, how do I want to say this? I was taught in a policy school that didn't think in those terms that, that when we talked about management, we thought about property rights and mm-hmm. to talk about property rights. What are you talking about? You're saying I have rights to something and you want to articulate what that means. Maybe it's common property. Maybe it's private property. Maybe I can sell it. Maybe I can't. Um, but there is in that framework, there isn't any discourse about obligation. Mm. And I think that's a lot of what's missing from that framework and some intellectual aha moments that I have had have been in realizing that in the limitations of the traditional framing about land and property in my own education and background. Mm. And so I'd be interested in your own thoughts on this particular concept and the power that um, kinship and reciprocity have in the systems that you study either in the past or in the present and kind of, and also to you, like, do they do important intellectual and emotional work for you in understanding human environment relationships? Cause they seem to be very prominent across multiple literatures and systems to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, so the, the term kuleana, um, you know, most people will, will immediately define it as, as, um, responsibility. Um, and, you know, I mean, I even grew up kind of like, you know, oh, it's your kuleana, it's your responsibility. You got to go do it, you know? Okay. Um, but when you look at the, the broader application of the word. So for instance, when land was finally privatized in Hawaii in um, 
a series of, of political um, declarations uh, while Hawaii was still a monarchy, um, uh, starting in about 1848. Uh, the land parcels that were given to commoners, which were awarded via um, written testimony as to their usage of the land, um, those parcels are called kuleana. Um, and essentially, yeah, so it's, you know, becomes your right. Um, and so it is this dual word that, um, you know, essentially at, at its, you know, deepest essence, I would say is stating that your rights to land are, are based on your responsibilities of caring for it. You know, and, and most practitioners today, you know, are still fairly uncomfortable with the concept of land ownership. You know, I mean, they still will refer to themselves as stewards, um, right? And that Instead of owners. Instead of owner, yeah. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. you're only here temporarily, you know, that land and, and the components of that land, the water and the trees and the animals and the soil, I mean, that's all going to be there long after you, you know, you don't own it, you don't direct it, right? You have an opportunity to interact with it for some set period of time while you're here. And um, so prior to, to land privatization, you know, land tenureship was very much based on a, a high, hierarchical allowance, I guess, maybe, um, you know, essentially you had to prove your worth, <laughs> um, to be part of that community and there were nested communities, right? So there are Ely, which would be like, a, a maybe extended family unit, right? You know, 20 to 30 people, um, occupy this, you know, complex housing complex and surrounding areas, um, uh, and there was a, um, a hakuili, a, a, you know, kind of head of the household. And basically they got to dictate, okay, who stays and who goes. Um, so if you were a lazy bum, like you simply weren't allowed to have any rights to the land and you were forced to go elsewhere and try to find um, a community that would accept you. Um, and then those iliaina were nested inside larger ahupua'a, um, which kind of had a governor and same thing like the the hakuili if a hakuili is not managing his household well then they could be ousted um, uh, by the governor and then those ahupua'a were nested in the moku which were starting to be governed by chiefs and ali'i and same thing if the the governor the konahiki was not you know managing his ahupua'a well then he's out you know so everybody's position and their their rights were based on how well they achieved their responsibility in managing that land appropriately. And so, I mean, I think that was a very central um, uh, component of the entire management system. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the kinship is just... Um, I think harder to explain how it manifests other than, um, 
you know, that it was a, just a, a core central value in, in everything, you know? So when you're making a choice, you know, whether that's while you're playing um, as a kid, you know, or if you're, you know, felling a tree for your family as an adult, you know, I think there's just the awareness and consideration, right, of the, the impacts that we have on, on everything else around us. Um, and some of those are practical, you know, so for instance, um, you know, when you're walking down the beach, uh, you know, we were always taught to walk at the very, very top of the sand line, you know, right where the vegetation um, starts. And you never walk down in the middle of the beach or right along the coast because even your footsteps in the sand scare the little fish, you know, who are all crowded right in the shallows for protection from the predators. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of often communicated as a kinship concept, right? That, oh, you, you know, you don't like it, right? If you're trying to sleep or you're trying to be in your home and someone comes banging a drum through your house like no like you wouldn't do that to anyone you like why would you do that to the fish you know so it's often um couched in that kinship terminology but then the practicality of those practices are a lot around the fishery management and that you know if you impact the the survival rates of those little fish like that has big trickle down effects in terms of the the health and vitality of your your local fishery um so a lot of times we see that where there you know the values and practices are communicated through that kinship lens uh but they often have also very you know practical and applied outcomes uh in terms of resource management yeah yeah i mean i, I i'm trying to be careful not to project but it, that makes sense to me the way i've interpreted it in part is that the kinship lens as you say is, is kind of a medium for implementing these effective management strategies is one thing that's happening seems mm -hmm. to me yeah. Yeah. And then the other is, I mean, I think, again, um, you know, it's very hard to change practices, right? <laughs> um, I mean, I mm -hmm. see that in myself all the time, things I would like to do. It, it's hard. And to really get people to heavily engage, um, you know, and not engage like, oh, I give a donation once a year or I do this, but like, I mean, 24 seven, right. To engage with environmental values, like it has to be a really deeply embedded um, concept into your entire epistemology, into the whole way you see the world. And that's what I think that kinship concept does is it gets deep, deep, deep in you to where it's, it's an emotional, um, personal response. It's not something you do because you should do it or this or that. It's, I mean, it's a whole worldview where you're like, oh my God, I don't want to disturb the little fishies. I love the fishies. Why would I do that? I don't want someone to bang a drum through my house. Why would I do that to someone else? 
Right. And so, I mean, I think that's, yeah. Um, it's deeply internalized. Core part of it. Yeah. Cause, cause otherwise it just, um, it's really hard to get those practices. You know, people don't do things because they're told, right. I mean, people do things, um, because, well, according to some, uh, social theories, right. There's the value actions, behavior theory, right. Like before your behavior is ever going to change, things have to be internalized as a value. And then that starts to manifest over time. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think that kinship does that. I think it just makes it this really deeply internalized thing. Um, that I think is critical and something that's missing today, right? Um, in the way we teach and raise children, um, I don't think we focus enough on on values and and getting things deeply internalized. We just jump right into you know um, kind of cognitive learning. Yeah, um, you keep beating me to the punch. No, there's like three things you just mentioned that I want to <laughs> talk about next, and so one of the obvious questions to ask then is like, how do we, how do we get people to internalize things that, that currently are not being very much internalized? How do we kind of get, get things back to the way things were, which reminds me of your restoration work. Um, okay. But there is that, but I think maybe the next thing I, I wanted to ask you was, cause I, I know you've also written about um, ecosystem services a bit. Um, and there's this idea of cultural ecosystem services, which I perceive to be one of the most important parts of that discourse, saying that it's not just about what we can pull out of the ground. It's not just what we can physically, you know, extract. It's about a non-material cultural social values, non-economic values, et cetera. And that's part that's felt like an important improvement in the, in the discourse in the last, I would say, decade or two. You also mentioned this idea of instrumental value. And I actually saw this in, a, in an article of yours that I was looking at. Um, you mentioned this distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic value. And that's a, a distinction I've been trying to make, a lot, make some sense of recently. Because it, it feels like a part of what's happening is when you talk about this internalization is that, that, that things that were extrinsic, things that people used to do because they because it's an instrumental thing. Oh, I'm getting paid for it. Right? The mm -hmm. deep power of, of something that's internalized is that people do it for its own sake. I mean, that's, it feels like that's the power that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's the power of intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation. One critique I've heard of the ecosystem service framing is that it's still emphasizing kind of what we get out of nature as opposed to emphasize. And so the nature is still kind of seen instrumentally in some ways. Well, we value it because it gets us these other things. Um, what do you think of that critique? Do you, cause I know you've written again about ecosystem services. Do you think that that's a limitation that that perspective faces that it's not kind of intrinsic enough? Mm -hmm. oh, that's a great, great question. Yeah, when I was at Stanford, um, I almost transferred over to Gretchen Daly's lab, who has yeah, been a big um, proponent of ecosystem services. And um, yeah, I even did my first summer research as my PhD, potentially looking at 
forest ecosystem services ended up not you know, going a different route but um i did you know have many conversations with gretchen over wine about you know this this topic with me arguing essentially what the critique is right that there's horrible danger in potentially making all of these these services right extrinsic um values and and i mean i never fully got convinced by all her arguments but you know i mean she essentially explained her perspective and motivation and that well right now like they're not valued at all <laughs> right you know so even adding you know adding it in not the perfect way is a huge you know um benefit and contribution uh over what the status quo is and so i mean it didn't doesn't really get to the heart of that question but you know that that did make sense to me <laughs> um, and I, yeah i certainly understood her perspective and you know building on that like i do think you know that's right that you know it is a step in the right direction and yeah i don't know i mean it's it's hard to think of how you instill well for me it is anyway and how you actually instill right intrinsic um stuff you know i mean especially like how we both said as kids you don't you know you don't even realize it right until you're yeah. looking back way later and you go oh, man that deeply shaped who i am and what i care about and what i'm going to you know choose to do um with my time here exactly um yeah you know which maybe relates a little bit to the restoration work because i think that's a huge outcome of the restoration work a lot of times from the ag perspective um it's not a viable solution right now you know economically it can't stand on its own two feet in our current system but what it does do is provide these opportunities to engage people in it um and potentially um embed some of those intrinsic values um you know the lo'i restoration here in Hawaii the flooded wetland production of taro um you know are many of them are strongly educational or cultural um and you know you go there and you watch these young kids just like playing in the mud and you know working hard and playing hard and like having you know just these amazing relationships both with with each other and with um with the land and the plants and i mean i think that's how you start to instill you know those intrinsic values it's not like a prescribed um <laughs> exactly way. like there's no curriculum there's no like you know we're going to do this but um yeah simply by by having those opportunities for people to engage in a way that allows them to have these really strong emotional responses to the experience i think that's a key part of it yeah I mean, I'm kind of brought to two thoughts. A comparison I've made in my mind about this is it's, it feels a little bit like faith to me. Someone who has, a, has mm. faith, they have it. I can't force myself to have that same faith or belief, mm -hmm. whether it's religious or not. It's, it's, you have to be kind of be brought up in it. 
And if you're not, I can't just be like, oh, well, tomorrow I'm going to believe in this, you know, a deity yeah. or whatever it is. Like, <laughs> I, I can't just be like, well, this, it'd be, I would act better if I felt that way. But I, you know, it, it's, it's got to be kind of organic or bottom up. And I think that's, you, you said it really well with using the word prescribe. You know, I, again, I got a PhD in essentially public policy and we want to feel like we can prescribe things. And so the discourse is about taxes and subsidies and cap and trade and individual transferable quotas for fish. And it's, but it's not about values because we don't know how to prescribe that. Mm -hmm. How do you fit that into a textbook? How does that, you know, we have these policy instrument taxonomies and that's not, it's not in there. Mm -hmm. And that's been a major critique of the policy discourse. It's just blind to a lot of that. Yeah. No, it's, uh, one of my colleagues here, Mehana uh, Blake Vaughn, who would also be a great uh, person for you to talk to on this. Um, but she's been really heavily involved with the community-based fisheries management on Kauai. And, um, and I think something about that ownership of the policies that has really strongly highlighted you know the the kuleana of of the community the reciprocity and um yeah i don't know i mean we'll see how it goes but it seems like a a pathway that might might help to solve some of those some of those things yeah it's getting a little out of my realm but (laughs) so noah getting back to your restoration work because i know that's we haven't talked a lot about it. You mentioned that there are these challenges. Um, it's hard to be a farmer. It's hard to, you know, you're kind of competing with these economies of scale and global supply chains and globalization on all that, all those, all those things. In the U.S., you keep on hearing about um, the consolidation of farms over the last however many years. It's harder and harder to be small. And to add a little academic jargon, because you know, academics can academic. You know, I, I mentioned interdisciplinarity and a term that I've, I've come to kind of like is, is transdisciplinarity, which it feels like that's kind of what you're doing is, and it, you actually had a, you, you put it better in one of your articles that I was reading today. Let me see if I can just like culturally centered science. It's a nicer term. It kind of flows better, right? The idea that as a scientist, your role isn't to kind of come to a system with your hypotheses and then test them and leave and get rich and famous, but you actually... And it's about values again. It's about adding new values to the scientific recipe that have equal weight with the traditional ones about generalizability, et cetera. And those values are about the local participants in your research. And so that's the kind of framing that, that, that I applied when you talk about restoration work. That's kind of how I hear it. I'd love to hear from you about what motivates you again to do that work in spite of these challenges and what your hopes are for the future for that work. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of it, I think this relates broadly to the the origin story. (laughs) Uh, I would credit Stanford also with a little bit of it because they were very strongly you know, while I was there moving toward that direction in terms of getting away from um, disciplinary science and, and, you know, science for the sake of science, you know, into 
much less asking why and starting to ask, okay, how to then do we solve some of these problems? And um, so our program was housed in the Woods Institute for the Environment, which was, um, yeah, very much focused on just kind of bringing different perspectives to bear on, on major environmental problems of the world. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, at a more personal level, you know, just another Olelo um, no Iao, really common Olelo no Iao here in Hawaii is Ole Pau Ka'ike Kahalau Ho'okahi, meaning not all knowledge is taught in one school. And, you know, I mean, I'm not only aware, but I mean, I'm really proud of all the other types of learning I've done and, and activities I do in my life, you know, besides academia, you know, and I was, you know, exceptionally proud of that at Stanford because I was a lot of the people um, we were with were very solely focused on, on that academic perspective. And um, just every day, more and more, um, I've been starting to use uh, uh, the term context <laughs> because it's just so important for any, any of the, the solutions, you know, and to go back to what Roger Eli told me, right? You can design, you can engineer the perfect solution that nobody wants. Um, and, you know, and how we were talking earlier about how, you know, important in val values are and the intrinsic values are in motivating people. Um, I think we really have to strongly acknowledge that in any of the work we're trying to do, uh, that if we really want anything we, we believe or, or discover, you know, to actually be applied and adopted and, and you know, brought into um, people's lives, like we have to be working <laughs> with those people to understand the context. What are their values and beliefs? You know, what will, will and will not they do in, because of their own personal things? You know, what knowledges do they have that sit outside the, you know, knowledges that we um, think about more often? And yeah, I don't know, it's just, it seems so critically important. Um, and, it, you know, I mean, I'll certainly say it's, it's not, I mean, I was going to say not always easy. It might actually say it's not ever easy. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because, you know, there's so many different perspectives and beliefs. And um, I think it's just that that context is really, really important um, for understanding these problems. And, you know, the more I do that, the, the you know kind of deeper I go into to understanding the the context and situation of our problems, you know, the more hyper aware I get of how a lot of the solutions out there, you know, being forwarded by like our politicians or businessmen or things like that are just you know like they're never going to fly, <laughs> right. you know, because they're so ignoring, you know, all the, the, you know, social and economic forces that um, most people are governing their lives by. 
kind of forgot the question, but. Uh. <laughs> Transdisciplinarity writ large, kind of what motivated mm. you? I mean, one, one thing I had in mind when I asked you the question, Noah, kind of what keeps you wanting to engage in these different cooperatives um, in particular, that's kind of what I had in mind because that's what I'm part, that's largely what I'm aware of you've been doing in terms of the restoration work. You know, for me, when I feel kind of stagnant or losing some hope or motivation, a lot of what has historically brought those feelings back is working with, you know, I'll say inspirational people in particular times and places because mm. you can kind of, and I see this in my students where they feel like they need to like change things in DC or, or nothing. Mm. And I just, uh, and to me, an important an antidote to that is to actually make a difference, however big it is, like in a particular place with a group of people. And it's mm -hmm. true, as you say, that's like, it's never easy because the longer you work in a place, the more there's a, you know, history accumulates for better or worse. And so you get bonds and connections, but you also accumulate disagreements and all these things. And it's, it's human labor mm -hmm. to do all that stuff. Um, so that, that was the question more or less that I, that I had in my mind. Nice. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I'll say a few things and see if I come to an answer. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I mean, one of them, which is kind of the opposite of it, um, is that, you know, starting at an agronomy department, uh, whereas I had really a ecology and a, a social ecology background, um, you know, I definitely felt a bit like a misfit. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, I just did not work on the same things as everyone else. Um, and so I did definitely feel a lot of pressure to um, kind of do some classic agronomy uh, work. Um, you know, which I, which I've done mostly on, uh, uh, breadfruit has been a crop that we've, we've really put a lot of effort into. And so, yeah, so even trying to do that, you know, trying just to be like, okay, we'll do agronomy, you know, we're going to figure out whatever fertilizer needs of breadfruit for optimal production. And we're going to figure out how to foliarly test to, you know, adequately determine nutrient status of the plant and we're gonna you know work on some of the diseases and pruning and um I mean, we did it <laughs> uh, but even even in doing it like i i don't know like i couldn't stay like in that silo there are just like there's so many other aspects to it um both from the the people like the farmers we're working with right like because they'll start asking you all these things like well you know what about co-cropping with this like i do diversified farming i want to know what i can co-crop with and um you know and then talking to you know a, a, a hawaiian farmer and he'll be like oh you know we'd always heard that you know when you get like three fruits at the end of the branch like this, that's because we have like low pressure systems coming through and it's going to, you know, be a heavy abortion year. And I don't know, like there's just, there's so much out there. <laughs> um, yeah. It almost, I'm almost amazed that people can kind of stay <laughs> in their narrow focus and like, and be happy with that. Like, I just, I don't know. I think a big part of it is that it's all, you know, super cool and, and really interesting. And you kind of want, I want to do it all. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, to me, it does keep it a lot more interesting to, you know, have a lab that 
you know, sitting there, you have students doing chemical extractions on soil and you have like students transcribing interviews they did with elders and you have students doing spatial modeling and it's just, um, yeah. And, and what I really love about it and actually what's probably been among the most impactful um, part of what we've, we've done is it allows you to start to tell stories. You know, you, you can't tell a story about breadfruit fertilizer requirements, right? It's a hard answer. It's like, okay, they need like X amount of potassium and you want nitrogen in a lower level. I mean, it's just, but you know, when you start to build, um, you know, these, these narratives about, you know, how these, you know, there was a huge breadfruit grove in South Kona that we're restoring. Um, the Kalu'ulu, you know, it was 18 miles long, half mile wide band of breadfruit that was established, you know, um, likely during the time of Umialiloa. And we know why that breadfruit belt is where it is exactly. And it has to do um, on one boundary because of, of hard environmental limitations. You know, we absolutely can't overcome it. And then on the other boundary, it's a biogeochemical threshold that, uh, you know, changes the way the trees work. And, you know, you look at the role it played in terms of the resilience uh, and how it there were cultural considerations in there. And then we look at the historical trajectory of how we lost it and grew up a coffee industry there. And then now that you're bringing it back, like it's allowed us to tell really good narratives, really compelling mm -hmm. narratives. And I feel like that, um, you know, going back to our intrinsic extrinsic conversation a little bit, stories start to reach that intrinsic, value it starts to let people see the broader arc of of um of how things are and how they work and where they want to situate themselves in that and you know so even at the political level you know when we go and testify for policy or whatever you know i mean we throw a lot of facts at them but we also try to to, to weave that into a storyline that, that, you know, hits home a little harder. And that's something that I, I find only comes from that kind of transdisciplinary work from, you know, from engagement with history and with people today and understanding individual stories, um, again, both in the past and in the present and um, being able to pull out you know, meaning and importance from those, those individuals. Um, yeah, it starts to, to me, it's, it starts to, to get at something that, um, yeah, get goes deeper, that gets deeper into it, into people and actually starts to convince them because yeah. there's one thing I've learned during COVID is that you will never convince anyone of anything um, on social media using facts that um, sounds about right. <laughs> but you can convince people with with stories and you know i loved your your analogy to religion earlier because I, I think that's dead on you know you can't like just choose to believe 
but people do choose to believe. And usually when they do, they're, they're either convinced by um, people close to them or they're convinced by the story. You know, religion has great stories and that draws a lot of people in. Um, and so same thing here. I think if we can tell these really compelling stories that lets people step out of the, you know, mundane day to day a little bit and step back and, and look, um, you know, look a little more broadly, you know, I think that's when you start to, to at least get at the opportunity to change people's mind. Mm -hmm. um, not saying that it's, it's universally effective, but, uh, but yeah, I think it, it does get to that level. Um, and I think that's really important. Yeah, that's very well said. Oh, good. Cause it sounded like I was rambling. <laughs> no, this is terrific. Yeah. Um, well, no, I do want to be sensitive to your time. I, it's clear to me that I could keep asking you questions for another two or three hours. Uh, I'll make the next question simply to, to ask you if there are other um, topics, issues, experiences that you wanted to make sure that we talked about and then you had the opportunity to share um, before we wrapped up. No, I think this is a pretty, pretty nice conversation. Pretty wide ranging. That's the goal. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, likewise, I would, I would love to sit and, and continue this. It's been really, really interesting. Um, but I am going to have to uh, get on to the next thing here. Continue with your Monday morning. Yeah. Yeah. I actually just got the notification that my. Someone's waiting for students, you. <laughs> well, my students' timesheets are due in 15 minutes. So okay. Gotta, um, log in and do that. Or else I'm going to have some very disgruntled uh, lab techs. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.